you've got your Bibles with you, could you turn to Luke uh, chapter 9 and uh, verses 46 to 48. That's where we're going to be uh, coming from today. And as I said, we're continuing our series through the book of Luke uh, this morning. Um, but it's a new phase, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But I really like going on journeys. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I like journeys, whether long journeys or, or short journeys on foot. You know, I love uh, a good walk. Um, I love to drive as well. So uh, going by car is great. I love traveling by train. Um, I'd rather go by train than plane. It's just a preference, I think. Um, but I think journeys are one of those things that you either love or you hate. They're a bit of a marmite thing, aren't they? You love or you hate. Some people can't stand the thought of being cooked up in a tin can for hours on end going places, whereas others can't get their head around a nice country walk. It's just, for some people, it's just not their thing. Some people are all about the destination. It's where they're going to. That's what the journey is. While for others, they like to take their time. And to uh, the journey itself is what it's all about. Some people like to take railway holidays. And uh, the journey on the train is as much part of the holiday as the places that the train goes to. And journeys just happen to be everywhere in our lives. They happen to pop up every day. We make journeys every day. We even come home and put on the TV and we get to experience them there as well. A few years back, there was this show called uh, A Long Way Down, where Ewan McGregor and uh, Charlie Burman uh, rode motorbikes from John O'Groats, uh, the top of Scotland, right through to Cape Argolis on the southernmost tip of South Africa. Uh, they had an end goal in sight, but their aim was to experience the countries and the cultures along the way. And our journey through Luke is taking us on a similar course. In the weeks and months that were leading up to Easter, we laid out the evidence that Luke provides pointing towards Jesus being more than some teacher or prophet. He's more than a revolutionary. He is no troublemaker and much more than a saint. Through his words and teaching, through the healings and the releasing of evil spirits that he performed, through how he champions the lowly of society and rebukes those who are in power and authority, we see Jesus as a healer of bodies and minds and a saviour of souls. Our journey started around the small town of Capernaum, a fishing community at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, the home of fishermen Peter and brothers James and John, three of Jesus' disciples who we saw called in Luke chapter 5 with the words, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. Capernaum is the place where Jesus establishes himself, starts to train his disciples for the work they will have to undertake, and shows us that he is the Son of God. In the first part of chapter 9, we have Peter's confession of who he thinks Jesus is. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus asks. Peter answers, you are the Christ of God. Jesus establishes himself in the hearts of his followers. They see that he is God's chosen one. The one that God has sent to bring them freedom. But as today's passage will make clear, 
they don't really understand what this means. The disciples are still thinking that Jesus is the one who, in earthly terms, will bring freedom and safety from the Romans, restoring Israel to its former glory under the kingship of Jesus. Today's passage is the start of the second phase of Jesus' ministry. And in the second half of chapter 9, we find the disciples getting ready to go on a journey of their own. The Capernaum phase of Jesus' ministry is over. It's time to go to the capital city. But as we saw on Palm Sunday, Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem as a general with an army, but a servant on a donkey. The disciples are getting ready for their journey. They know they are heading for Jerusalem and are expecting a military march. But what they are actually about to do is set off on a pilgrimage to bring the Passover sacrifice to the people and the whole of humanity. This next term through to the summer sees us ducking into the stories and the teaching on the journey, on the pilgrimage, on the road to Jerusalem, meeting people and cultures and places along the road. Jesus is going to the capital. But before we start, the disciples are making a mistake. Let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 48. Who will be the greatest? An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, he is the greatest. Greatness is an issue, I think, that's dogged the church since before it even existed. We are fallible humans who crave status. The disciples have proven what they think and what they are looking for. And an argument breaks out amongst them. Who is the greatest amongst us, Christ John? No question about it, replies Peter. It's me, of course. Jesus did give me a special name. <laughs> James laughs. Yeah, right, Simon, the rock. Rock head, more like. He does have a big head, doesn't he, James? Encourages John. Well, joins in Bartholomew. When Jesus is king, I'm going to be the one who gets to live in the palace and be chief of the people. Yeah, right, more like chief of the donkeys, Thomas laughs. Bartholomew, that's what we'll call you, <laughs> teases Philip. Status and power. The disciples are misunderstood what to be great is in God's economy. Agenda and ambition have got in the way, have blinkered the disciples to what Jesus is trying to show them. And it often happens this way when you start out in a new undertaking. Whether in a secular or a Christian context, when any new project that is undertaken uh, starts, personal agendas and ambitions have to be reviewed and set aside. You take a group of people with a passion to get something done, to start a community project, say, and you think you're all on the same wavelength, but actually beneath the, the core objective, we, we all have a slightly different understanding, slightly different motivation, a slightly different perspective on where things should go. And this can cause problems, and instead of being the team that we should be, instead of being one, 
disunity can be born. You might say this has been the church's biggest issue throughout history. Too many personal agendas have got in the way of God's plans. I want to be uh, thorough though. There is a difference between having an opinion and talking it through and being respectful and working it out than having a personal agenda that you railroad through which causes disunity. In our Baptist ecclesiology, the church meeting is the place where the members come, whether it's member, leader, minister, come together to discern God's will. It is the place for discussion and opinion, but it's the place where we search after God's agenda for his church, leaving our own behind. We seek to serve the whole and build up the church, which is the bride of Christ for the bridegroom, who is Jesus. When we don't set aside our own ambitions for the mind of Christ, for the agenda of Christ, for his bride and his ministry and his mission, that he calls us as individuals and as a community to be a part of, we're no different than the disciples here, whether directly or indirectly, searching for greatness in this life. Greatness is, as the dictionary says, the quality of being great. That's not really helpful, is it? But the quality of being great and then eminent or distinguished, having fame or acknowledged superiority within a particular sphere. The disciples think that Jesus has come as the liberator from their Roman overlords, that he's come to restore the temple and Jerusalem back to them, and that he has chosen them as his lieutenants. But here we find them jostling for power and control. Power is one of those areas in the Christian life that, if we're not careful, replaces God. 1 Corinthians 19 tells us that our bodies are temples to the Holy Spirit. And when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and fills a void in our life, comes and dwells within us. He fills the gap that is clearly there. Perhaps you're not a Christian yet this morning. Or maybe you've been exploring uh, this Christian life and you know there is some gap. You know that there is something missing. You've tried to fill it with all sorts of things, but each time you go away feeling empty. There are so many things in this world that shout at us that they will be our fulfillment. They will nourish us and make us whole when it's just a lie when we go away feeling empty. For those of you who have already found Jesus and you've had that gap filled, you will know the struggle to keep that focus on Jesus there. Again, the things of this world shout at us loudly and as we let them in and allow parasitic things to enter us instead, they take take dominance in our lives. It seems easier to put your trust in other things. Money, for example. If I can earn more money, I will be content and happy. The void will be filled. The worry about money, not feeling you have enough of it, perhaps. Penny pinching when you don't need to. And the potential lines that that takes you down. Fiddling your taxes slightly. Putting in the odd extra false expenses claim. Or maybe it's sex watching a pornography or sleeping around. Intimacy, looking for the partner who will make you whole 
or even if you're married, putting all your faith and trust in that one person to make you happy and whole. Unfortunately, they can never do it. Only Jesus can fill the gap. Power is the issue of today. It's the issue of the disciples' souls at this point. It was one of the temptations that was laid before Jesus in the wilderness. We looked at it in January in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. The devil led him up to a high place and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Perhaps it's uh, power over others in some way because of the status that it gives you, the perceived respect and fear from others. You think that those who hold power have it right, that those who are perceived the greatest have it all and have it all sorted. It's a challenge to those of us who lead in the church to be reminded that we serve a servant king and that if we see leadership in any way about us and our agenda or for our own glory, then we, like the disciples in verse 46, have missed the point. But it might be power in a different way. Perhaps it's something you give power to in your life, like drink or drugs, allowing them to control you. Something that you end up worshipping. To worship something basically means to give it worth. What do you give worth to? This greatness that the disciples are seeking after, how does it manifest itself? In them being worshipped? In them being given control? Have they missed the point that actually it's God who has given all the glory and praise? And Jesus demonstrates for us and tells us before he has even started his ministry that it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship and serve him only. Are you in danger of giving your worth, your worship to something else? Or even becoming the person who is worshipped instead of God? Ministers can quite easily become the object of their own praise. I do like to hear good feedback of the things that I'm involved in from folk. It helps to keep me right and helps me to keep me know that I'm on the right track. But the temptation is always to think, yeah, I'm good at this. I'm good at this and to forget that it's not about me, but all about Jesus. So what do we do about this? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 47. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is the least among you all, he is the greatest. Little children at this time were the lowest of the low in society. They had no status. And Jesus is saying that whoever welcomes those who are lowly, those who are despised and rejected they will realise how great they actually are. Because when we welcome them, we actually welcome the King of Kings. We actually welcome Jesus. When we think of ourselves as great, we push God out of his rightful place. 
when we welcome others and give of ourselves, we put God in his rightful place and give him glory and honour. So where does this leave us? Let's go back to Jesus' journey that he is about to undertake. We saw at Easter that Jesus didn't end, uh, end by marching in and freeing the people from the Romans in a military sense, taking back the temple and proclaiming himself as king. No, he meekly became the lamb for the slaughter of Passover, fulfilling the prophecies of old as a servant taking the lowest place, even to death on a cross. Jesus is about to set off on a pilgrimage. In the film The Way, Martin Sheen walks the El Camino de Santiago, or in English, the Way of St. James. His character walks in memory of his son who died while undertaking the pilgrimage to the tomb of St. James, which is in Spain. It is thought that the tomb is the resting place of the disciple James, brother of John, the same one Jesus recruited in Capernaum. And it is thought he evangelised into the region of Spain and Portugal. And it is thought that the Christian gospel spread up from there through the rest of Europe. People walk the way as a pilgrimage, looking for enlightenment and spiritual awakening as they journey and visit the site of the saint, the saint's resting. And we might go on a modern spiritual pilgrimage, whether it's to New Wine or Soul Survivor or Spring Harvest. And when we go to these events, we are searching after God's Spirit for a new revelation. In Jesus' pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he recreates the Exodus story and makes himself the lowest of the low. All those years ago, Moses led God's people out of the land of Egypt and towards the promised land. It was the first Passover. And when God spared the firstborn Israelite children and all the firstborn children of the Egyptians died, the Israelites went on a journey led by Moses, who was led by God. And all these years later, Jesus takes a journey, led by God to the Passover festival, where he would replace the sacrificed lamb by becoming the one who was sacrificed so that we don't need to be. Following Jesus is what it's all about. That's what the Christian faith is about. Nothing else but eyes first and foremost on Jesus, following where he leads and giving him our worship. But along the way, we allow things to get in the way. And we try to fill the gap in our lives with so much rubbish when Jesus is saying, come to me and I will give you rest. I am all you need. The disciples haven't got it yet. They thought they needed status and greatness. They thought that's what Jesus was going to give them. But how wrong they were. Jesus was making them disciples, servant leaders. And the challenge here is for each of us. Firstly, in our individual lives, what are you giving authority to? And allowing to replace where Jesus should be in your life. And secondly, are you kicking into place your own agendas and ambitions for God's agenda? And thirdly, for those of us in leadership, 
whether it's in the church or elsewhere. How do we exercise that leadership in a way that is Christ-like? Because as we've already heard in verses 47 and 48, they have this to say. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. He said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he is least among you all. He is the greatest. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. And I want to lay my agendas before you because I know that I have them. And I want to put them aside for yours. For your agenda for my life, my ministry, as a father, as a husband, as a son of you, yours. Lord God, may I take on the life that you have for me, the agenda that you have for your mission. And Lord, I pray that if for other people here, if that's where they're at as well, that they could just lift that up to you and that you would take it and you would mould them into who you want them to be. We pray that today, heading to our church meeting for this church, that we would seek your agenda, your heart. That as one we step forwards to serve your kingdom. So that you would be known, so that you would be shown so that you would be proclaimed the greatest from this place. Lord, we bless you. And we give you the worth that you are due.